0: you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 31 as we come to the the end of 1 Samuel but I'll remind you that in the Hebrew Bible there's not a first and second Samuel there's just a a book of Samuel this is one story and we've just covered the first part of it and so we're going to continue on uh, in our study of Samuel with 2 Samuel we're not stopping here but but it is fitting that in our, our Christian Old Testament that there's a division because uh, we really do come to a, a point in 1 Samuel 31 where a transition is taking place. Uh, this is the end of Saul, the, the death of Saul. And it is a tragic, tragic end. Uh, Saul did not start out tragically. He, he started out well, but he doesn't finish well. He loses his life, takes his own life as the Israelites are being defeated by the Philistines. But we learn uh, from God's word both by those who have faith and obey and from those who do not have faith and do not obey. And so uh, I pray that we will learn from the tragic end of Saul's life today as we study his word together. So study God's word together. So we're going to Look at 1 Samuel chapter 31, and out of reverence for God's word, if you're able, uh, if you would stand. As I read today's passage for us, we, we stand because this is the holy word of God. It has been preserved and handed down to us that we might learn from it today. And this is what that word says. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Least these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to Stripped the slain they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, and stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines, and to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when the inhabitants of Gabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done, all, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, And they came to Gabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Gabesh and fasted seven days. If you would pray with me. Fathers, we come to a tragic passage, the, the, the end of a life not well lived, the, the defeat of your people, the overtaking of their cities. We come to a, a dark and sad chapter in your word. And yet, Lord, I, I pray that you would teach us through it, that you would remind us of the call you've placed on our life to stand fast to hold firm to press on through the hardest of times help our faith to grow stronger today not weaker help us lord to do what Saul refused to do even in his dying breath help us to call upon you and to trust in you we ask this now in Jesus name amen you may be seated find myself at times uh, reading through obituaries uh, partially as a, a pastor it's good to know uh, who's passing away in our community and to pray for those families but even uh, obituaries at large and, and as you read obituaries you you'll find some at times that are, are rather humorous whether it was the person or their family that that wants to add a little light-heartedness in the end I'll give you a couple of examples. One I read was of a 94-year-old woman. Her obituary said that she passed away peacefully at her home on July 1, 2015. It is believed it was caused from carrying her oxygen tank up the long flight of stairs to her bedroom that made her heart give out. She left behind a lot of stuff to her daughter and sons who have no idea what to do with it. Now, they actually went on in the obituary to list out much of that stuff, and to ask people at the appropriate time to come and make offers, and they said that time is now. <laughs> Another, I read, was of a 69-year-old man who, his obituary stated, escaped this mortal realm on July 29, 2016. We think he did it on purpose to avoid having to make the decision in the pending presidential election. He leaves behind four children, five grandchildren, and the potted meat industry, for which he was an unofficial spokesman until dietary restrictions forced him to eat real food. Uh, you find obituaries like this that have humor, they, they bring a smile, and then you'll find at times obituaries that aren't humorous at all. Obituaries that are rather tragic. Like this one that I came across of a man in Texas. It stated that he was born on November twentieth, 1942 and passed away On January 30th, 2017, which was 29 years longer than expected and much longer than he deserved. At a young age, he quickly became a model example of bad parenting combined with mental illness and a complete commitment to drinking drugs, womanizing, and being generally offensive. He enlisted to serve in the Navy, but not so much in a brave, patriotic way, but more as part of a plea deal to escape sentencing on criminal charges. With his passing, he will be missed only for what he never did, being a loving husband, father, and good friend. What a tragic word about someone's life. And yet, as we come to the end of 1 Samuel, we we have a tragic word here about Saul's life, a life that was not well lived, a life that started out well, if you remember in our study, the ground we've covered, we were introduced to Saul, and the first thing we learn about him is that he was a, a handsome young man, that he, he towered above the rest. Where we see him in those early days as someone who's very humble, who's someone is who is servant-oriented, he's, he's serving his father in the field, he's, he's going after his father's lost livestock even along the way, he, he's consulting God's prophet in order to find instruction. He started out well, but as we come to the end of Saul's life, we find him far from where he started. In fact, we've seen in these recent chapters, as we've looked in on Saul's life in his later years, that time and time again, he refused to repent, and he refused to trust in the Lord. There have been times when it seemed he was sorry There are times when he seems to acknowledge God and his plan, but time and time again, he reverts back to his own sinful inclinations. And so with Saul's passing, we could say that he'll be missed for what he never did. He never truly repented. He never truly trusted in the Lord. He never truly trusted in David as his successor, and as the Lord's anointed. And so as we come to this chapter, we come to a sad chapter in the Word of God. But there's much for us to learn, even from sad chapters. And so we'll begin with the first point there in your outline. We're reminded from Saul's sad ending of the call that God has put on our life to run the race of faith with endurance. To run the race with endurance. As I read through and studied 1 Samuel 31, I thought about passages that that, that really call us towards not ending like this. uh, Avoiding the fate of Saul. The passage that came to mind over and over and over again was Hebrews chapter 12. We read this in the first two verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now how do we today avoid the fate of Saul? We we focus on passages like this, which remind us among many other things, that we are to run the race of faith with endurance. Again, even in this tragic ending, we're reminded that, that Saul started out his race well. I mean, just by way of summary, we, we get to this point now, we, we pick back up in the battle scene that we started in just a little while ago, before focusing on David. Now the focus is back on Saul, and we see the Philistines are, are winning now in this battle against the Israelites. We see that Saul and his sons, they die in battle. We see that the people flee. The Philistines then come. It's, it's kind of like a, a scene out of a movie where a uh, battle's taking place and you see people the next day coming and they're, they're taking the swords and they're, they're, they're taking the valuables from those who are slain. The Philistines are doing this and as they're doing this, they come across the bodies of Saul and his sons. And then in an act of just utter humiliation, they, they cut off Saul's head much as their warrior Goliath had lost his head now Saul will lose his they take his remains from there and his sons and they that they put them on a wall in one of their fortified cities these these are trophies to them that this is the humiliation of God's people on display and as we come to the end of the chapter, we're, we're told here that there's a group of valiant men from Gabesh Gilead who hear about what's taking place and they, they risk their lives to go and to take these bodies down, to, to rescue them in a sense from this humiliation on the walls in the Philistine city. These men, you may recall the name of the city they're from. It goes back to the very beginning of Saul's reign as king Samuel anoints Saul Saul is anointed before the people he becomes the king and one of the very first things we see happening there in first Samuel with Saul as king is that this very city these very people have been besieged by the enemies of God the Ammonites they besieged the city and you might remember that in an effort to make a treaty with them that their, their, their captors told them if they gouged out their right eyes they would make a treaty with them. And so they issue a cry for help and that cry comes to Saul and the scripture tells us that the Spirit of God overcomes him and fills him and he leads this charge against their captors and he frees their city. This act of kindness did not go unnoticed. And now time has passed, and while Saul and his sons are dead, they're still in need here. The the people of God are being humiliated. And so they come and they take these bodies and they properly dispose of them. They bring them back home and they bury them in Gabesh. It reminds us that in the beginning, Saul started well. That in the beginning, he was anointed by God to lead the people of God, to protect the people of God. And and that's what he was doing in the beginning. But we're also reminded in this passage that as time passed, while he started well, he did not finish well. Saul became less concerned about protecting the people and more concerned about protecting his throne. He stopped trusting in the Lord and turning to the Lord. And that is evident at the end of his life. And so we come to this battle scene and we see that the Philistines, as they are overtaking the Israelites, they, they kill Saul's sons. And they're trying to kill Saul, but apparently he, is, he has fortified himself in such a way that they can't get to him, but the, the archers are shooting arrows and eventually those arrows, those arrows find Saul and they injure Saul. And now he's at a point of accepting defeat. He knows that the end is near. You may remember from last week, I referred to the place that we found David when he returns home to the city he was in there, in the land of the Philistines, and, and finds that his, his wife and his kids are gone, that his army uh, is turning against him. They want to stone him and kill him. We, we talked about how David in that moment at rock bottom. Was we come to this point in 1 Samuel 31, as Saul is laying there on the battlefield, arrows likely sticking out of his armor and his chest, his sons have been killed, his army has been destroyed. This is him at his rock bottom. If you'll remember, David at rock bottom, he, he turned to the Lord, he, he called on the name of the Lord. But Saul, in contrast, doesn't do that. That there's no indication here in the text that Saul does anything to trust in the Lord, to call on the Lord. He has been a man who's been trusting in his own devices and in the end, he will trust in his own devices. He turns to his armor bearer and he tells him to run his sword through him and kill him. He doesn't want the Philistines to come and take his body and do what eventually they end up doing. But his armor bearer refuses. You'll recall that Saul's previous armor bearer one of his armor bearers was david and david had refused to raise his hand against the lord's anointed and now this armor bearer refuses even in this moment even by command to raise his hand against the lord's anointed and so saul does what his armor bearer would not do and he falls on his own sword and then we read his sad obituary in verse six thus saul died and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. Saul did not finish well. So how do we avoid Saul's fate? Well, again, the writer of Hebrews tells us, we run the race with endurance. We hold on. We press on. We persevere. We don't give up. When we keep our focus where it rightly needs to be, on Christ, we, we look ahead to that new heaven and that new earth. We, we put our sights on glory, the glory of God. Not the glory of man, not our own glory. Those things will fade and perish. God's glory will endure. We heed the instruction of God's Word in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up we hear the call of philippians 3 beginning in verse 13 where paul writes but one thing i do forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead i press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of god in christ jesus we endure and we persevere and how do we do this well We go there in our second point in your outline. We hold on to the promises of God. And we come to this point where Saul, it would seem at this point, is not thinking of the promises of God at all. And it would seem that the men of Israel aren't either because verse 7 tells us, When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were beyond the Jordan, this is a reference to those who weren't even a part of the battle, part of the army, but from a far distance, they're aware of what's taking place on the battlefield. Word is coming to them. They they can see the scene in the distance of the Israelites fleeing and the Philistines pursuing them and the Israelites dying. It says they saw the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead and they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. Well, we need to be careful that in the midst of seeing Saul's tragic ending here that we, we don't overlook what's taking place in this verse. I mean, Saul is dead. His sons are dead. Much of his army is Dead And the ones who are not dead have run away. And the people of Israel are are witnessing all this and their response to it is they run away as well. And then after winning the battle, the Philistines come and they take up residence in these cities that had belonged to the people of Israel. this, This promised land that God had given them. Now the enemies of God's people have overtaken it. But they didn't take those cities from the Israelites. The Israelites ran away from them. Just one verse. But no small thing is happening here. The Israelites abandoned their home. They abandoned their land. And with that, they're abandoning the promises of God. And why is that? Because, friends, they had put their hope in the wrong thing. That they had set their focus on the wrong thing, that they weren't remembering and holding on to God's promises. You'll remember how all this started in the first place was that the people who had God as their king, which was much greater than their neighboring nations, who just had earthly kings, they look around at their neighboring nations and they want to be like them. And so it's a tragic tale long before chapter 31, at the very beginning when the people of God refuse and turn from God. When they say they want an earthly king instead of God as their king, when they reject God and they put their trust in Saul. You remember in the very beginning, God rebuked them for that very desire. He told them how tragic this would go. He told them exactly what would take place and yet they refused. To listen to God, His Word, and to trust in His promises. They wanted an earthly king like everyone else. So God gave them one in Saul and they put their hope. They put their trust, not in God, but in Saul. And now Saul was dead. And the heir appearance to his throne, his three sons, well now they're dead And now the army that would fight with them, well, many of them are dead as well. And now the Philistines have overtaken them. And so what do the Israelites do? They run away. They abandon the promise because they put their trust in the wrong thing. Friend, what are you putting your trust in today? What's the the foundation of your hope? Now, we all know the right answer to that question. Jesus, that's the right answer. But but what is it in your life today that, that if it were to be gone, if it were to come to a tragic end, if you were to lose it, that would leave you in this utter devastating moment where you would feel that you had nothing left, what is it that, that, that God could take from you today that would leave you so devastated that you would just abandon everything? For the Israelites, it was their king. For Israelites, it was the hope they had put in Saul. And for us, well, it can be so many other things. It can be relationships. It can be our jobs, our careers, our finances. It can be our families. Our loved ones, it can be politics, it can be so many things that when they don't go the way we had hoped or when something tragic happens to one or many or all of them, it feels like we've lost everything. That the Israelites at this point, they're, they're looking out at the battlefield and that's the sense I think they have, is that they just lost it all. And so they walk away from their homes, they walk away from God's promise. What is it that would lead us to do the same thing? I believe the reminder to us, from their tragic decision to walk away from their homes to abandon them, that would then be occupied by the Philistines, is a reminder to us to consider, what is it that we're putting our hope and our trust in today? And if we don't find at the very foundation, at the very end of that question, that the thing that everything else rests on, if we don't find there the promises of God, that, that we're trusting in them over and above, beyond anything else, if we don't find that's what our trust and our hope is in, then we are on a shifting foundation. and We need to repent. and We need to return. and We need to trust and hold on to those promises. How do we avoid their faith? Well, again, the writer of Hebrews tells us we, we look to Jesus who's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Which brings us to that third and final point as we prepare for the Lord's table together. We, we look to Jesus. Now in the course of 1 Samuel, Eli has died, Samuel has died, and now Saul has died. And it is tempting for us to come to the end of First Samuel and say, well, yeah, but, but now we've got David. <laughs> we're we're going to turn the page. We're going to come to 2 Samuel. This, this tragic story is going to get so much better because now we've got David, the apple of God's eye, the man after his own heart. We've got David. But I'll remind you, David's story doesn't end well either. David fails in ways that compared to Saul, they're much graver and greater. David, time and time again, will, will struggle to put his trust and his hope in the Lord. We, we don't come to the end of 1 Samuel and say, well, we'll now at least we've got David and things are going to turn out better with David, because they don't, really. And then after David, many others will come and, There'll be highs and there'll be lows and there'll be trusting in the Lord and there'll be fleeing from the Lord and there'll be acts of faith and there'll be times of faithlessness. And it's kind of this roller coaster that goes throughout the Old Testament narrative. But all of it reminds us that at the end of the day, we don't grow stronger in our faith by looking to David or Moses or Abraham or Joseph. Certainly not Saul. We, we grow in our faith. We endure, we press on, we move forward when we look to Jesus. And friends, I'll remind you that even way back in First and Second Samuel, that that's where David was looking. He, he was trusting in the promise to come. How do we know this? Well, God's Word tells us. Acts chapter 2. Peter in his sermon at Pentecost says this. Beginning in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's reminding them that David will say face the same fate, did face the same fate as Saul and many others. He, he died and he was buried. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. And so what's Peter's point here? He's saying that David was looking ahead to Jesus. That that David was looking ahead to the Messiah that was going to come. That, That all these generations of living and dying and living and dying and living and dying ultimately were to focus on the one who would live and would never die. He would live and reign for all eternity. And just as David's focus was on Jesus, we're called to put our focus on Jesus as well because Jesus did what Eli and Samuel and Saul and eventually David and others could not do. He was raised from the dead. The writer of Hebrews reminds us, he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. He makes constant intercession for us. Therefore, our hope is in him. By all accounts... In 1 Samuel 31, Saul was not hoping in Jesus. He was not looking to Jesus. He was looking at the Philistines. And he feared what was to come, and so he fell on his own sword. David, amidst all his failures, was different. Not only would Jesus be one of his descendants, but but he was looking forward to that day. And we find that time and time and time again as we read through the psalms and we see david's repentance and we see his hope and we see his trust and we see him looking towards christ and the messiah who would come and friends we're called to look forward and to look towards the messiah who will come today except this will be the second coming this will be the advent the second advent the return of jesus the culmination of all things We're to look towards that day in the establishment of a new heaven and new earth. We're to look towards that day that we read about in Revelation 21 where where there's no more dying and no more grieving and no more suffering. And where God makes all things new. We're to hold on to that promise and we're to look to it and we're reminded of it not just when we open up the Word of God. We're reminded of it when we come to this table together. A foretaste of what is to come. A a reminder of what already has taken place. These items in front of us. A a small cup of juice. A a small piece of bread. they They are items of remembrance. For us to remember what it is that has taken place. And to remember what will take place. They are... An opportunity to commune together in faith. To trust in Jesus together in faith. So to look at passages like 1 Samuel 31 and be reminded that in the midst of tragedy and in the midst of great suffering and loss, Saul could have turned and trusted, but he didn't. And so we're called not to make that same mistake and to trust in Jesus. And so as we turn our attention now To the Lord's table before we prepare to receive, or as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper together, I want to remind you of what we read in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul writes, for I received from the Lord, but also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. We're going to do that in just a moment. Then he says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We're going to do that in just a moment. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This this is a gospel proclamation moment. But hear this first. Verse 27, 1 Corinthians 11 Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so also eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Do you hear that instruction? It's easy for us when we come to the Lord's table to look at that first part, but that second part is crucial to prepare for the first part, and that's that before we come to this table, we're, we're called to self-examination we're called not to come to the table in an unworthy manner. What that means is that if, if you presently, as a professing follower of Jesus Christ, are in a place like Saul where you're refusing to repent and you're refusing to turn and you're refusing to trust, then, then you're just heaping judgment on yourself. You're, you're going through a religious motion by taking this bread and this cup. You aren't truly trusting in Jesus. In fact, the, the Scripture, I think, would indicate you, you need to just observe today unless you're willing to repent today. Now, hear me on this, that this doesn't mean that the only people who can receive the Lord's Supper are are those who are perfect, because if that were the case, we need no cup and no bread, (laughs) because we all fail that test. No, we we come to this table, we receive this cup and this bread, not because we're perfect, but because we're trusting in a perfect Savior. We're trusting in the perfection of Jesus. We're trusting in His righteousness. So weak and wounded, we come. Weary and suffering, we we come. Longing and wanting, we come. Struggling, we come. And we come as those who trust. And so I'm going to invite now our deacons to come forward as we prepare to receive the bread and the cup. And before we receive each of those, we're going to pray And as we pray, I want to invite you today to consider what we read here in 1 Corinthians 11 and to make that prayer a time of repentance, a time of confession, a time of honesty before the Lord, a time of trusting in Him. We begin...